Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Good morning, church. Uh, it is a real privilege to be here with you. I normally am here with you, but typically I'm in the, uh, the I'm hearing the word. But today, uh, it is a real privilege to be here to share the word with you um, and to to continue our series uh, through two Corinthians. Um, they they really were scratching at the bottom of the barrel to get to me, um, but nevertheless, uh, it is still God's word, and I. Uh, it's my prayer that he would use uh, his word to minister to us today. Uh, and just before we read God's word and before we dive into that, let us turn to God in a word of prayer as we seek his blessing. Dear Father, we thank you, Lord. We are in awe of you. Lord, we owe everything to you as we've just sung. We remember, Lord, that... Lord, we are nothing, but Lord, we have nothing to bring. We have no gift that is that can repay you for what you have done on that cross. Lord, we understand that even though, Lord, you have given us this great sacrifice, and Lord, you've given us your spirit, Lord, that we still fall short, that Lord, we still daily struggle to put to death the old self, to put to death that former manner of life and to live in the, the new way of life. But Lord, I pray that this morning that in a small way that you'd touch each one of us. I pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit and I pray that through your word, each one of us would more and more put to death the old self that would be transformed by the renewal of our minds and that would grow to love you and trust you and be in greater awe of you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as I've said, we continue our series on 2 Corinthians, and we are in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And as we, as you turn there in your Bibles, I'm sure that all of us have heard this phrase somewhere in some context, extraordinary circumstances call for extraordinary measures. In one way or another, we have heard that, but I think nowadays, at least in our present context and the culture of today, I think a more fitting statement would be extraordinary circumstances call for extraordinary people. The reason why I say this is that when you turn on your TV, you see superhero movie after superhero movie. You get Spider-Man who has been bitten by a spider and he's got a spider sense and he's got strength and agility and the ability to climb things. You get a Superman who is an alien who can fly and shoot lasers out of his eyes, who is uh, the strongest being in the universe apparently. Batman's power is his wealth and his ability to develop technologies that can defeat enemies. All of these Examples show us an extreme emphasis on the need for extraordinary people to accomplish extraordinary feats. And I think that this stretches beyond the fantasy world of our TVs, but I think it applies to our present day as well. 
Very often people are looking for the man, the, the presidential candidate that will turn everything around simply by his willpower and his drive. Some people are looking for extraordinary spouses that will be the love of their life and that will bring them joy and that there will never be anything wrong. And the world which is around us and which we live in is constantly clamoring about looking for these extraordinary people to do away with their problems. And I think sometimes we go so far as to apply this logic to the church and to our own life of faith. We are often looking for that extraordinary preacher who can preach the word with such boldness and vigor. And if we had that preacher come visit us, that would spark a revival in our faith. Very often, we in our own ministry, we believe that we are insufficient to do a certain task because I'm not good enough. I'm not extraordinary. How can I speak to that person when I am a sinner and weak and helpless? But this morning, I want us to consider this, and this is the title of the sermon, The Sufficiency of God. The Sufficiency of God. This morning, I want us to understand that it is not God's way to raise up extraordinary people to accomplish His purposes here on earth, but that it is God's way to use helpless, weak, sinful individuals to accomplish His purposes. He takes that which is useless and he makes them useful. With that in mind, considering the sufficiency of God, let us read from, uh, we'll begin from chapter 2 verse 14 and read to uh, chapter 3 verse 6. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit brings life. The reason why I began our reading from chapter 2, from verses 14 to 17, is because Paul in chapter 3 is immediately continuing on from what he had just said. So I thought it would just be useful to remind us what is it that Paul had just been speaking about in chapter 2. Well, in chapter 2, Paul is describing a triumphal procession. 
Imagine a general leading his army behind him, and behind the army there's the slaves and the captives that they have conquered. And he's, Jesus is the general busy leading this army to show everyone, to show the world the victory that he has won. The victory of Jesus is not a military victory, but it is the victory over sin, death, and the devil. And we as believers, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are part of the army of Christ and we are following in procession after him. Looking to him, glorying in what he has done because he has conquered death through his death and resurrection. And as we go through this life, following after our glorious king, we are not isolated in our victory. But as we go through this life, Paul says that Paul says that through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. You see, we are the arms and the legs of, of, of Jesus. We are the church of God, the, the physical manifestation of the presence of God here on earth. And thus, as we live and move and interact in this life, we are busy sending a message to this world. And that message that we should be spreading is the knowledge of Him. The understanding of who Jesus is and what He has done. And as we live our lives, as we go about proclaiming this victory of Jesus, as we go through this procession, what we are saying is that there's a message of salvation. And there are some that will receive this message of salvation gladly and be saved. And there will be those who still deny Him and reject Him. And if we stop and consider this, this is simultaneously a wonderful and great privilege. We are a victorious army. We march not as those who are confounded and those who are worried and those who are uncertain of what the future holds. But we march in victory. And what we are saying is everyone, the world, all nations, tribes and tongues, there is a victor. And you too can partake in the victory through faith in him. But it is not only a great, it's not only a great privilege, a great joy to be doing this, but it is a great responsibility. Because you see, God has so designed it that we are the fragrance of Christ. And if we are not the fragrance of Christ, then how will they know? How will they hear? How, they re how will they receive Christ? And that's, I think, a little bit of what the Holiday Bible Club is going to be about. How we are to reach every single nation in the world with the gospel. And you see, this is, this is such a, a heavy burden, I think. Because we can say, I am so weak and weary. I don't pray enough. I'm too cowardly to go speak to my neighbor. I'm too cowardly to speak to my best friend about Jesus. How am I to be a minister of his salvation to the ends of the earth. You see, Paul asks the same question in verse 16. He says, who is sufficient for these things? And the implication is no one. No one is sufficient. No one is able. No one has feet big enough to fill these shoes. No one is qualified. No one is extraordinary enough to be the fragrance of Jesus to this world. Yet, though this is the case, 
We, like Paul, have been commissioned and are called to be his servants to tell the world about him. And with that context in mind, we come to chapter 3. And the first point from chapter 3 I'd like to highlight is the marks of God's commission. The marks of God's commission. In verse 17 he says, But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. In verse 1 he then goes on to say, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? If you know anything about Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church, it is quite a topsy-turvy one. The moment that Paul left, the church immediately fell into sexual immorality. And, the, uh, and false teachers came into the church and began leading the church away. And what they started saying is that Paul is not, Paul is not really an apostle. Paul is not really, uh, it's not really sent by God. How do you know that he has been commissioned by God? Paul describes these people as super apostles because they had this superior attitude about who they were and they successfully turned the church against him at one point. But at this point in the letter, uh, at this point in history, the church had largely turned back to trust in Paul as a true apostle of God. But since he had just addressed the idea of being commissioned by God to speak in Christ and asking whether anyone is sufficient to be a minister of God, he asks a couple rhetorical questions. He asks whether he needs to commend himself. He asks, do I need to prove myself again to be a true apostle? Or do I need somebody to write a letter for me to say, oh, Paul is a true apostle? And the rhetorical, well, it's a rhetorical question, and the obvious answer is no. But you see, the false apostles, the false teachers, were precisely like that. They were the very people, when they came, immediately began commending themselves. They would be the people that were saying, look how many churches have planted, look how many people have baptized in the last year. There would be the people with all the letters saying what a wonderful preacher this man is. Saying that they were truly God's servants. And to the Corinthians' eyes, these men seemed to be extraordinary men that Paul was not. And they flocked to them because they seemed to bear more evidence of a true servant of God. But I want us to note this. That we are not to judge ourselves or others of whether they are true servants of God by what we think of ourselves, what we can say about ourselves, or what other people can say about us. It is very easy to, to look at ourselves and think that we are such wonderful beings and commend ourselves to others. But what is that but empty words if there is no true evidence behind that? It is very easy to get a letter of recommendation. I still have my high school letter of recommendation. And they commended me for doing, like, going to a club one day. They said, oh, he attended this club and he did this thing. But it's not really true. Yet it's still there. It's written. And if I were to use that, people would think I was a far better high school student than I was. And that's exactly what happens here. If somebody else commends us. So... This is not how we are to examine how we are fulfilling our commission to God. 
You see, all of us have this gospel commission to be the fragrance of Christ to the ends of the earth. It is not what you see yourself as. That is irrelevant. Because if you see yourself as a weak sinner who is useless, you're right. And if you see yourself as something better than that, you're going the wrong direction. And if somebody else seems to think that you're more wonderful than you are, that can easily puff us up and get us into places that we should not be. Again, we have this tendency to exalt people above where they should be. I find myself doing what the likes of Paul, who just did so much for the Lord and his life just... Sorry, I find myself doing precisely what the Corinthians did. I look at Paul... I see miracle after miracle. And I begin thinking, this man is a super apostle. This man is extraordinary. If only I could be like Paul. If he has something that I don't have. But by all accounts, Paul was not a perfect saint. Did you know that Paul was a poor speaker? His very ministry was to preach and he was a bad speaker. The false apostles in chapter 10, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians, they say that he is, his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. See, the super apostles were better speakers. They appeared more wise, more, more, more uh, better people to listen to and to trust than him. But do we ever consider that Paul arrived at Galatia, a sick man who needed to be cared for because his body was failing him and they had to look after him for a while? Do we consider that Paul was struggling with sin in Romans 7? We see that he he is crying out to God that he'd be rescued from this body of sin. He agonizes that he's a sinner. Does this not sound a little bit like you and I? Is Paul sufficient for this ministry of being the fragrance of Jesus to the world? Is he qualified enough? No. No. He was a minister of the gospel, not because he had good things to say about himself or because he was qualified. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do we see ourselves as Paul did? Do we see ourselves as insufficient? Because Paul was insufficient and he understood that. He understood that it was only God's grace that was sufficient For him to do this task. But that begs the question then. What does true true service and ministry for Jesus look like? How am I to judge how I am serving God? How am I to look at my life? How am I to examine other people's lives as well? Whether they are true servants of God. Well it's not how I view myself. Nor is it how other other people view me. But it is how we It is how we see the work of God through us. In in verse 2, he says, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. You see, he says that I don't need a letter of recommendation from somebody else. But the evidence of your life is a letter in itself that proclaims that God has touched your life. You see, Corinth was an immoral city. There was much sexual immorality. It was a wicked town. But when these Corinthians had been touched, there was a clear evidence of change from here to there. And therefore, it was a letter shouting out to the world, saying that God had touched them. God had worked in them. In verse 3, it says, 
And you show you are a letter from Christ. Christ has done this work. Christ has written this. Christ has caused this change within you. He rejects the idea of commending himself and rejects that somebody else's words determines one's sufficiency. But he points to the work of Christ in the lives of the Corinthians. He calls the Corinthians his letter of recommendation. And you see what that is. It is not what he did for the Corinthians. The only reason why he knows that he has been called of God to serve is because there's evidence that God had been working through him. You see, if God, was, if God was not working through him, there would be no change in the Corinthians' lives, and therefore he would not be, truly be a, let, a, a servant of God. See, these Corinthians were now like lights of the world. They were a city set on the hill for all to see. And Paul says that this letter of recommendation was written not with ink, Not by a human, not by something that we can fabricate, not something that we can act. It's not a a show that was going on here, but it was done by the Spirit of the living God. The change that happened, that letter that God wrote on the souls of these believers, was not something that they could act. It was a deep-rooted change within the hearts of these believers. It is not something that you or I can do. Paul could not change their hearts. Paul could not write on their hearts. But God, by his spirit, could do so. In Ezekiel 36, God makes this promise. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He made a promise hundreds of years before that he would come to save his people. And not only save them from their sins, but completely rid them from the power and the dominion of sin. And give them, their Holy, give them the Holy Spirit so they'd be able to obey his law. Thus... When God gives his spirit to a person today, when God convicts someone of the sin of righteousness and of judgment and of their desperate need for a savior, who is Jesus Christ, that is a moment that only God can do. Only God can cause a person to be born again and take out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 17 verse 1 says, the sin of Judah is written with, an, with a pen of iron. With a point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of the altars. See, this is the terrifying state of every unbeliever. See, a heart of stone, it is quite easy to carve into. It's quite easy to chisel in what all of one's sins were. And that's the image that we get there, is that these sins are not forgotten. That the unbeliever, all their sins are recorded on this heart of stone because it is dead. And there's no evidence of the life of God there. And this is the case of every person who is outside of Christ. But when they trust in Jesus, at that moment the record of debt that stood against them with its legal demands is cancelled. Because it has been set aside by Jesus. Because it was nailed to the cross. 
You see that, that, that the inscription of our sin that was on our heart, that is put upon Jesus. And it was nailed. It says it was nailed. It describes Jesus as our very sins on the cross. When Jesus was crucified, our sins were there. Our debt was paid. He was crucified as though a sinner so that we would be forgiven. So that our debt would no longer be called to account. But more than this, not only does he take away the debt, and this is really what Paul is emphasizing here. He doesn't merely take away the debt, but he gives us an entirely new heart so that we can live and love and obey him. It is no longer a rock which is incapable of moving, incapable of life, but it is flesh. It beats. It lives for God. It loves after God. Another Old Testament promise comes from Ezekiel 31 verse 33, where God says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And this is what Paul is describing in these Corinthian believers. This clear evidence that God has written on your hearts. And therefore, if we read this text correctly, he says, I will do it. I will do it. Not you. Not Paul. Not me. Me preaching here, I can't write anything on anybody's hearts. But it is purely the work of God. And the point is, I've, I've labored on this point for a long time, but the point that I hope that we see is that true ministry of God is redemption. I cannot redeem a person. I can play no part in bringing a person to be saved. I can't take somebody's heart out and put in a new heart. I can't, conv- I can't convict anyone of sin. Do you see how insufficient we are? See, Pastor Charles could stand here week after week after week and preach and preach and preach. But if God did nothing on our hearts, it's useless. But I must emphasize this, that though we cannot change anybody, we cannot take somebody's heart out and put in a new heart. Paul was still that fragrance of Christ. We mustn't think, oh, Conrad said we can't do anything, therefore ah, just do nothing. It doesn't matter. The nations can perish. We, we can't do anything. No. But it is precisely Paul's insufficiency which gives him the confidence to go. Imagine it was up to me to take out somebody's heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. How difficult would that be? But Paul has confidence because he knows that he serves one who is completely able to do this. He's totally able. He's totally sufficient. God is sufficient for today. And that is my point. God is the one who is sufficient. These things are too great for us and certainly for me. And the second point, and this point will be shorter. We are, we are made sufficient By a sufficient God. We are made sufficient by a sufficient God. Though we are sufficient, though we are insufficient, though we are not big enough to fill these shoes, this should be a great confidence to us. In verse 4, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. 
You see, their confidence that their ministry will be successful was through Christ. It was not in themselves. It was not by their own sincerity. It was not by their own efforts, by their own prayer, by their own extraordinary abilities. But it was through Christ. That is why we should have confidence through Christ toward God. Because it is God working through us to accomplish His purposes. And this should embolden us. This should not drive us to laziness. It should embolden us because it reminds us that when we feel weak and sinful and cowardly, God knows it. God knows I'm a coward. God knows I'm weak. God knows I'm insufficient. It's not strange to Him and I don't have to act like I am what I am not. God knows and therefore through His Spirit He's able to make us sufficient for these things. But it is easy enough for us to say, ah, God is sufficient. I trust God. I, I believe that he is able to help us. But it is very easy to say that but not to believe it in our hearts. I thought a, a, I thought a, good, a good story, a good biblical story that I, I love. I'm very fond of myself that we find in cha, uh, Judges chapter 6 verse 8. It speaks of Gideon. He was, a, he was a judge of the nation Israel, meaning that he was chosen by God to, to free Israel from an oppressive nation called the Midianites and then to, to draw the, the people of God back to him because they had gone astray. But I'll just highlight a couple things from God's calling upon Gideon's life. And I read from Judges chapter 6. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, and which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So notice the first thing. The first thing we learn about about Gideon is that he is hiding things from the Midianites. He's not the first one to go and plow through and defeat this this oppressive nation. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now that's a rather inappropriate title, isn't it? What has he done to show that he is a mighty man of valor? And Gideon says, said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all these wonder, wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from the land... Uh, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And now you see that he is one who is doubting God. Where's God? You say that he is with me, but look at us now. Look at us being oppressed by this nation. But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. What a faithful servant he is. From this we can see two things. He's hiding and we can see that he's quick to blame God for the issues at hand. Sounds quite a lot like us, doesn't it? And then, continuing on, it says in verse 14 of chapter 6, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. 
Again, God tells him, you are my servant that will wipe out the Midianites and free the land of Israel from oppression. And again, you see Gideon there is like, you know, God, you know, Lord, I, uh, I'm the, I'm from the weakest tribe, uh, and in my house, I'm like the runt of the litter. You know, sure, not me, surely not me. It's almost as if he's squirming to get away from this. But what he's practically saying is, there's nothing about me, Lord, to suggest that I'm able to do this. I am no man of valor. I am weak. I am scared. Surely there's somebody better you can choose who is more extraordinary than I. But you see, Gideon had completely missed the point. In himself, he is no warrior. In himself, he's not valiant. In himself, he is not mighty. But it is because God promised to be with him. I will be with you. The Lord is with you. And that is what makes a man mighty. That is what makes a man strong. He was insufficient. How could he lead uh, lead the armies of God against the Midianites? Well, because God could make him sufficient for it. And the same words that the Lord told Gideon there, that he is with him, is precisely the words that our Lord Jesus uttered when he gave the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, it's the same promise there. It is not saying that uh, you, my disciples, Have this in the bag. You are able to do this yourselves. No. But it is because I go with you. I go with you. We are able to do what Gideon did. Lead the the charge of God against the Midianites. We are able to be the missionaries of God to this world. The fragrance of Christ to to this dying world. Because God enables us and makes us sufficient for whatever lies before us. And more than this, we have not been called to lead an army, but we've been called to something far greater. We've been called to follow an already victorious Savior. And we've been called to tell others about this life and righteousness and salvation and eternity with Him that can be found in Him. We come as liberators to tell the world that we need not be bound by the law, by the letter of God. That our sins can be forgiven, that the guilt within can be removed. And we come to tell of the free gift of the Spirit who brings life and peace. On this new covenant, I haven't spoken on too much today, and and I'm certain next week we'll get into that more. But in closing, I want to remind us of four things today. If you take, if you forgot everything, just listen now. Firstly, remember your insufficiency, that you are unable, that you are weak. If you are not always remembering that, then you're in the wrong place. Secondly, remember God's sufficiency, and that He can make you sufficient to fulfill His purpose, as He did with Gideon. Thirdly, therefore, let us with all the more boldness labor for Christ's sake, 
Because we rest on Him and not on ourselves. And fourthly, whatever fruit comes from our life and our ministry, if anyone ever grows in the knowledge of the Lord through us, if anyone ever comes to know Christ because of our ministry, give all glory to God. For it is only through His power that any good can come. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth this morning. That Just a reminder, Lord, that we are totally insufficient in ourselves to do anything. And Lord God, I do pray that we would remember our insufficiency this morning. Not to despair, not to be sad about our, or depressed about how small we are, but rather just to remember with greater and greater joy and confidence that you are sufficient for these things and you are able to make us sufficient. Therefore, Father, help us to live lives that are more and more bold, more and more eager, more and more filled with the, the power of the Spirit living out the calling that you have called us to do, to go to all the nations, to be your fragrance to this world. And Lord, I pray that in all these things, Lord, your glory would be known to us and that your kingdom would come. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.